All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? It is great to see you today on this second Sunday of August. Can you believe it? We're cruising through, and I so appreciated educators who stood earlier today. The school year is upon us. I was uh, chatting with a parent this last week, and uh, we were talking about an old Staples commercial years ago. It was a parent going through the aisles with a shopping cart singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I think after this last year, um, I think every Everyone's singing that in some way, shape, or form. And so a big week this week, and we will be praying for you as you start back, praying for students as they start back. It's going to be just a, a lot of kind of newness in a weird way. And so want to be praying for all types of different learning environments as we begin back. It is great to be with you. I got to drop in over at the Micah House Backpack Jam yesterday and seeing so many of you serving in some various ways and seeing families being blessed through your generosity. So those of you that donated backpacks in the month of July, thank you for doing that. Families were blessed because of the ways that you had given sacrificially. So we're grateful for that. And, and as we talked about today, the Serve Expo is going out there. I, I'm dressing a little casually today. Some of you have noticed my t-shirt. Like, hmm, interesting. I guess it's a dress down Sunday for Todd. But this is just to let you know that the shirts that Allison told you about, these are what we'll be wearing this next Saturday at our Team Trinity kickoff. And we are so excited to get to start off kind of a new serving year together. So, like she said, we expect this place to be packed with people wearing these, so get yours on the way out today. Now, as you saw, the video was hilarious because it's set up really well. One thing that I had talked to with our staff about this week, you noticed that Jethro, by the way, we would not have young men changing babies' diapers in the first place, just a disclaimer, just so you're aware. But secondly, we do need, as apparently Jethro is not going to be a good fit on a lot of levels, we need more help with our kids' teams and especially with our high school student small group leaders. So if that's an area where either A, you have served before, or B, I've never served in those areas, that's great. We'd love to teach you. It just begins with a heart and a willingness to say, you know what, God, I, I, where there's need, I want to be used, use me. So out there on the Serve Expo, please visit that after the service today and join us next Saturday as we kick off a new serving year together. Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of John. We have been really heavy in chapter 8. Chapter 8, we looked at it three different weeks. It is probably the pinnacle of conflict between at least the verbal back and forth between Jesus and these religious leaders. Today, we get to chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, you might want to make your way. Those double M's are messing me up today. Make your way to chapter 9, and we will see really, to me, what is one of my favorite narratives of the Gospel of John. And we're going to see some different characters that are just going to encourage you, as well as the foil, those who continue to say, Jesus, no matter what evidence you give me, I am not going to believe you are who you say you are. So that tension is still there, but it's in a little bit of a different scenario, and I'm excited to dive in with you. It's going to be a great time being together. As we see this today, we're going to see someone who is genuinely seeking truth, genuinely seeking to know who God is compared to and contrasted with those, though they are seeing, they're completely blind and want to stay that way. That's really the, the point you're going to see by the time we're done today. A group of people who want to be so convinced that Jesus is not who he says he is and who he shows himself to be, that's going to be really apparent. What I want to remind you of is that at the very beginning, 
we ask you sometimes to get into the story with us. This is a really cool narrative today, so it's really easy to do. I'm going to ask you to identify with one of two types of people. One would be, we've talked about this throughout the book of John, identify with who you are. Many of you are followers of Jesus, and you would find yourself in these gospel stories as a disciple, as one today, 2,000 years later, who's still doing what those disciples, the advantage they had is they were walking with him, seeing him, uh, interacting with him in a face-to-face way. We might not have that opportunity. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit instead. But the reality is identify with the disciples as they watch what's unfolding today, or In another way, what might be true of where you're at today, identify with the seeker. Identify with this blind man who has his eyes open on multiple levels. And we'll dive into the story today. Our now what statement, what we're looking at and what we want to walk away with, demonstrate spiritual sight by continuing to recognize Jesus as God's son and honor him accordingly. Demonstrate that you have spiritual sight by realizing and recognizing who Jesus is and living according to that. Number one in your notes today, our our difficulties and disabilities can provide a way for God to be on display. Our disabilities, I am really having a hard time talking. I should have done the exercise before I got up here. I'm going to work on this. Our difficulties and disabilities can provide a way for God to be on display. We're in John 9. We pick it up in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The he, by the way, is Jesus, to pick it up. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. That seems like a really odd thing to do. And he made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which this word means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. <laughs> but he himself insisted, I am the man. Now then, uh, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. All right, so last week we finished up chapter 8. And what we saw was consistently people who are, again, people, the specific people, religious leaders who were spiritually deaf. They're being told things and they're not wanting to hear them. Now today, we're going to talk about spiritual blindness. So we're going from one kind of uh, problem and disability to another. And in it, what we're seeing is, is this is a continuation in that conversation. Jesus is going about, and John is just picking up the flow. Some time has probably lapsed. Remember, all of what was going on in chapter 7 and 8 was this feast or the festival of booths. Then what we're going to see in chapter 10, it's going to transition and tell us that Jesus is teaching in chapter 10 about the feast or the festival of dedication. So this is this time frame is somewhere between the fall and somewhere between winter, so between like like um, September and December is when this narrative happens. 
The narrative begins in a matter-of-fact way that says that Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they come across a man who has been born blind. We don't know how they know that. We just know they know it. And it's not just that Jesus knows it, the disciples do. So as they're walking by, Jesus, imagine, put your sandals back on. You're one of the 12. You're walking with Jesus. And at some point, most likely in earshot, you begin asking, not just if this guy is born blind, but you're asking who sinned that this would be the problem. We just read right over it very matter-of-factly, but I want you to pull back just for a moment And let's give this guy a name. Every guy I give a name is always Pete, right? So he's Pete today. So Pete, imagine you're walking with Jesus down State Street in Redlands, and Pete is on the side between two buildings begging. We read that later on. That was his mode of life. And they walk by, and imagine you're walking by, and within earshot, you begin asking Jesus a deeply theoretical and philosophical question about the problem of evil. Theologians call it a theodicy. You want to know, why is this man suffering? Is it due to his sin or his parents? While Pete is sitting right there. Have we ever seen this text? Have we read it when we read it now? It's just now understanding the incredible lack of empathy of what these disciples, all they wanted to do is understand in their heads how do things like this happen. He becomes their, like their laboratory experiment. We don't care about Pete. We don't care about how. We just care, Jesus, how do things like this happen? And they completely miss the person. And they just wanted to understand something they hadn't understood before. Now, this line of thinking, by the way, was rampant. We read it all the way back, probably the earliest historical scenario happening, obviously Genesis covers creation, but kind of in that early time, even maybe in the patriarchs, is Job. And remember, Job's three friends can't get over the notion that his suffering, though not blind, he had every other affliction. They could not believe that his problems weren't generated by anything other than sin. Job, what have you done to deserve this? Job keeps saying, Nothing, nothing this bad anyway, nothing. You know, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what God is doing to me. And they go through like 30 chapters of the book of Job having this back and forth and they won't let it go. So this line of thinking has carried through, it carries through today. People here and all around our world that think that if someone has a disability, it's because they or someone connected to them, maybe even a parent, sinned. I wanna tell you today, the Bible does not teach this. And Jesus is going to counter and and correct their line of thinking. Now, catch this. Jesus doesn't say that's never the cause. He doesn't say that's never the cause for suffering is sin. But what he is saying, this disability, this thing that this man has, and this is the point of their question, this happened, he was born blind, so he didn't really have a chance. Did he somehow sin in the womb? You know, they're very confused about this the question of evil and suffering. How did this happen? But the reality is Jesus says, in this case, sin is not the culprit and shouldn't be the thing we do as our go-to that someone's suffering because they or someone else sinned. But he does clarify that difficulties like the issues that this man was born into aren't necessarily the result of someone's sin. 
Instead, he was born blind so that God's power could be on display right here and right now. Imagine the disciples processing, I still don't know what you're talking about. Number one, you flipped my theoretical grid on its head. I assumed sin was the basis for this. But now, how, how is God's power going to be on display? The guy's still blind. In this process and in the moment of what's going on, I want you to catch something because we know what we just read. We know that Jesus, in a very odd way, is going to heal this man. And he knows that, and that's what he's foreshadowing. But I want you to catch this. The man was born blind. In this passage, we're not going to be told today how old he was. He's at least a man. So he's not a child or a young adult. So let's just put him at a a conservative age of 35. His whole existence, his whole life has been marked by a lack of sight. But the purpose of God is going to be revealed right now because he's about to see. Can I ask you, if you are the man born blind, what are you thinking about God's purposes? God, that's a long time to wait for your power to be on display. I've never literally seen the light of day. And something that you're going to do right now is going to demonstrate your power and your strength, but I've been the one who's been in darkness my whole life. This passage causes us to have to do something about the purposes and the plan and the big picture of God and our lack of understanding thereof. Because your issue today might not be blindness, but it might be some other form of suffering. And if you're wondering and you're hearing this passage today, God, is this all about that somehow your power is going to be on display because something you're going to do but haven't done yet? Those are easy words for us to hear and rejoice over when God does something awesome like he's about to do. But when you're the one sitting in it, dealing with it, living it, I could have a whole different experience. And I want to encourage you what this passage rings to me is a reminder of the importance of putting our hope, trust, faith in God's sovereignty in every aspect of our life. Trusting that he always knows what he's doing and what he's doing is always best. Look in your notes. The, though every disability isn't necessarily resolved in healing, at least in this life, they all are opportunities for the light to shine brightly on Jesus' work in our lives because of them. There's a group of adults meeting on our campus right now called Light and Power, and we get to see God shine brightly through their disabilities all the time. People from Light and Power were serving yesterday at the Backpack Jam full of joy and communicating that love in powerful ways. You see, the Apostle Paul had something to say on this topic. Look at 2 Corinthians 12 up on the screens. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, take this affliction away that he knew God allowed So there was nothing in Paul's um, theology that was missing that God was like sleeping or on vacation when this happened. But he, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power, it would be demonstrating of who is big and who is small, it may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Just reread that line again. He delights. We run from those things. We feel purely afflicted when those things happen in our lives. Paul had come to the point where he understood, God, it's all about you being on display in and through my life. You get tons of attention when I go through difficult times and look to you. Look at the last line. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he says the same thing, not just about his personal experience, but for us in Romans 5. Not only so, but we also, we glory we glory, we have gratitude for our sufferings because we know that suffering produces something. It's purposeful. It produces perseverance. A perseverance, character, and character, hope. This is a huge theme in this passage I would hate for you to miss today. The glory of God, the focus of God, the display of God is infinitely more important in our lives in this temporal place than anything we might have to suffer through. It is easy for me to say it from a stage, it is very hard to live it, but it's the truth. Jesus goes on to talk about timing. We see that a lot in John's gospel. He says, we, he's now including his disciples, we have to be at work. The one who has sent me while the, the day is out, while, when, before night has come. And Jesus declares that as long as he is here, he is going to be about his mission. He says it, I am, another I am statement, the light of the world. This title, by the way, goes all the way back to the very beginning of John's gospel when John wrote about Jesus this way. John 1, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then back in John 8, during the Feast of Tabernacles, in this moment when I'm sure it was lit all over the place at night in their daily ritual, Jesus declares, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is making clear. He said he's a lot of things. In this portion of John 8, I am the light of the world. Now there is no lack of theories for what Jesus does next. Other times in the Gospels when Jesus heals people, sometimes he touches them and their, their affliction, their suffering is over. Other times he just says it. You're healed. Pick up your mat, walk, I didn't have to even touch you. But in this case, Jesus does something altogether different. Here's my point, we don't know why he does it. So I'm not going to add to the confusion of yet another theory of why he's spitting in the dirt. All I know, that in this instance and in this time, spitting in the dirt, making some mud and putting it on a guy's eyes and telling him to go wash at a pool was exactly what was needed. Not because Jesus had some lack of power, but because Jesus always has tons of purpose. So something about that exchange was meaningful to the man, meaningful to the scenario in that moment. The man does it. I mean, we don't read of any pushback. We don't read, I, we don't even know, did he flinch? Like, ooh, what, what? <laughs> you did what to get that mud? You're putting that where? Like, this is weird. Never once do we read about him flinching. We read about him simply doing it. And it says that when he washed from the pool, 
for the very first time in decades of being on the planet, he could see. I don't want you to miss that. Sometimes we'll read about healings in the Bible, and yep, and we just keep on going. Can you imagine? I asked you to get in the shoes of the disciples today, but just get in his shoes for just a moment. Never having context, just in his mental mind of, of what trees look like, of he could hear birds but didn't know their shape. Faces and, and, and names that he could only think, he knew names but faces he could only imagine. In that moment, his eyes are open and for the first time, more than tone is noticed. Now there's this round shape. Most of them had hair on top. What's that? Limbs. And they're moving and walking, and he's seeing motion and light for the first time. Man, talk about a game changer. Talk about something that radically would affect him the rest of his life powerfully. Jesus did this, does this for him. And the man is so obviously rich with and just overcome with emotion. <clears throat> What's wild to me, though, we see it on occasion in the Gospels, is when a miracle happens, it creates a brouhaha. It creates conflict and a problem where you'd think we could all just throw a party. This guy's been begging on the side of the road his whole life. He's never seen the light of day. Hooray! Let's just do car wheels. This is crazy cool. Instead, are you really that guy? I mean, I've seen you every day there for years. You look a lot like him, but that guy don't see nothing. No, I'm really that guy. Well, then where's the guy who did this to you? No idea. He just told me what to do, and I did it, and I came back. He was gone. That's where we pick it up next. Number two in your notes today. Unconvinced people often build a case against Jesus to justify their unbelief. Unconvinced people often build a case against Jesus to justify their unbelief. Obviously, I'm not talking about the man. I'm talking about the religious leaders he's going to go interact with. Chapter 9, verse 13. When they brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a what? Sabbath, exactly. Six other days of the week, Jesus could have done this. Wonderful intentionality, right? Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and I now see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man, which, by the way, is funny. They're still calling him that. He's not anymore. <laughs> what, have you, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until he sent for the man's parents. We don't believe you. What do you know? You're just a guy. Where's mom and dad? Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? What happened to him? Well, we know he is our son, his parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Watch the next verse. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. We'll get to that. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I, do, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> it's great, right? It's super. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. That, uh, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. That was good theology, by the way. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Go right back to the old theodicy. And they threw him out. We're not given the basis for why the man's neighbors, friends, whoever, take him to the Pharisees. We're not totally sure why now that's the next step, except for to say that they probably were like, hey, you're the, the religious gurus of our day. You understand when there's a, a healing, you must know something about it or what we should do moving forward. And they bring him to the Pharisees on this Sabbath day. And then this whole exchange begins. I want you to note the intentionality. We said it when we were reading. Jesus could have healed this guy any other day of the week. Probably walked past him on a Thursday. Oh, Saturday's coming. <laughs> Again, purpose, purpose, purpose. Jesus is so strategic. Because we remember in John's gospel, this has happened before. Jesus walks by a guy on a mat. Hadn't walked for years. Jesus tells him to stand up, pick up his mat. The man does, and the religious leaders go nuts. You don't wear, you don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. Like I told me to. He healed me, I'm gonna do whatever he says. So this conflict, Jesus is doing these things to rattle the cage of a group of religious leaders who have completely watched this, missed the plot. Look what he said back then in John chapter 5 about the man that he healed, or John 7, I'm sorry, uh, related to the event of John 5. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, meaning if there can be work done on the Sabbath to appease something else, why are you angry at me, with me, for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. I think another way of saying that what are you doing? You're, you're Israel's religious elite. You've completely lost your minds in the midst of making other people keep rules. Do you know the heart of God? Don't you think God's more interested in someone being healed than us keeping a rule of carrying a mat on the Sabbath? You've missed the plot. How can they be so lost in their illogical conclusions to miss what Jesus is doing? In your notes, unbelief is often supported by underlying motives or assumptions that someone has constructed, that somebody's put together so that they can continue to resist placing their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. 
Listen to some of these scenarios. Sometimes it comes up through the lens of apologetics. I might consider Jesus as the savior of the world, but I can't reconcile how some people will never hear the gospel and potentially go to hell. Therefore, Jesus can't be. Sometimes it appears in societal issues. I might consider Jesus as the savior of the world, but I can't handle the way that some of his followers treat minorities and people of the LGBTQ community. Therefore, Jesus can't be who he said he is. Sometimes it appears through personal loss. I might consider that Jesus is the savior of the world, but if he really was God, he wouldn't have let my grandparent die last year in COVID. You see, these are things that happen in people's lives or, or thoughts that they have, and they've built this case. And Jesus can do and say whatever he wants, but because this happened or because this thing is out there, I, I cannot, I will not believe. They become those stumbling blocks. But I want you to know this. What is often unspoken in people's refusal to believe to believe that they understand that they would, because they would understand that they have to give up control of their lives in order to follow Jesus' example and his directives for his people, and at the end of the day, they don't want to. I'm not trying to be overly simplistic and say that everyone who struggles with faith issues really has a secret agenda, but what I am saying is, many times people who have an agenda put up a struggle with faith issues. Because at the end of the day, they don't want to stop living with their boyfriend. At the end of the day, they don't want to stop chasing the idols that they have made out of things in their lives. At the end of the day, they don't want to surrender control to anyone, including God. So there is this mix of things going on. Now, if we would say, well, I don't know, Todd, is that really true? Well, we know it's true for the Pharisees. Somewhere that we haven't gotten yet in John's gospel, I'll preview it a little bit this morning for you, but is the clearest communication <clears throat> of what is the underlying motive. Why won't they say, Jesus, you must be that. You must be Messiah. Look at all you've done. Look how you teach. Look how you love. You must be. What is keeping them from doing that? John chapter 11, verse 47. Then the chief priests of the Pharisee and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. Look at this next verse. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and watch. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They are only putting to words what they have been feeling and thinking this whole time. That's why they're out to get Jesus. They lose power. They lose authority. They lose rank. Therefore, even if he is the son of God, we can't let him succeed. Wow. Talk about missing it. Talk about conveying the truth of a heart that is so lost. But they're only putting into words what so many deny. One of the things that some of you have become aware of in the last three or four years is a growing trend towards what this phrase is called personal deconstruction. It happened a few years ago at a notable level in a, a visible way when different Christian speakers, authors, musicians, even pastors were going through a crisis of faith 
And at the end of that time, in that struggle, when you would hear about it, you wouldn't hear, you didn't know that was happening, but then you would hear about it when they would say things like, I no longer believe this orthodox concept of the faith. I no longer can stomach this related to what the Bible, what so many believe the Bible is clearly taught. And even to some degrees, I no longer even identify as a Christian. Deconstructing their faith. This is been going on for a while in our popular culture, meaning it comes up, but it is beginning to trickle into the lives of us. Let's get our terms right, by the way. A Gospel Coalition article def- in an author defined deconstruction this way. It's up on the screens. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction, like let's, let's build this back in a different way. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. Now, you might know some people in your life, now that this trend is becoming more widespread, it might be a cousin, it might be a nephew or a niece, it might be a, a friend, it might be a person at Trinity Church, a friend that you've had over the years, whatever it may be. People who are coming to a crisis of faith, and, and this crisis of faith is taking them to a place where they go back to some essentials, some basics, and go, I can't work that way out of that. I don't believe it anymore. And it's heartbreaking when you have known and loved someone who is going through this process and ending up at some of those answers. Now, I want to say this first. If you're here today, I'm not trying in any way to shame or to guilt people who are deconstructing their faith. I want you to know if you're here today and that's what you're doing, I'm so glad you're here. And I also want to say this, if you're here today and you are in this deep level of processing things about your faith, can I tell you the the very best way to do that is always in community. The personal examples that I know of people like in my life, my relationships, who are going through or have gone through a deconstruction process, they've done it completely by themselves, isolated. They don't have any community of people that are, they can bounce ideas off of and go, wait a second, I'm not, let's think about that. What does the Bible say? Let, let's, let's get some more thought than just what you're doing spinning in your head. And I want you to know if you are struggling with issues of the faith, not in some way that I can pound, not in some way that I can give you 38 reasons why you're wrong, but in an honest conversation, if you are struggling, I would love to sit down with you. I'd love to listen. I'd love to ask questions. I'd love to pray with you. That invitation is completely wide open. But I want to ask you this question if this is you or the people in your lives that you can only guess at, you can't know. The people in my life that I do know that are going through a deconstruction process, I have a hunch, though, that there's more to it than a crisis of faith. It is, I don't want to live in a way consistent with Scripture anymore. I don't want to feel I felt shackled, I felt burdened by the call to holiness that Jesus has for his people. I have felt as though I can't relate to people in the culture in the way I would like to, whatever it may be, and there is an underlying thing that is motivating that, the people that I know. And so I wanna ask hard questions of even you if you're processing, what's the impetus? 
Is it a crisis of faith? Is it an issue of, I don't know how to deal. I don't know how to understand. Or is it, I just kind of am tired of doing what I've always done, believing what I've always believed, and I'm going on a path to figure out that maybe it's not true. I would warn you with the author of the book of Hebrews, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Can I tell you, you are welcome to ask those things in community and in context. We'd love to be helpful to you if you're struggling rather than just go down a path all by yourself. Back to the conversation at hand in John 9. The rest of the conversation, I believe, is somewhat comical. Let me, let me play two parts, okay? The Pharisees are saying to the man formerly blind, what do you think about Jesus? Healed man. He's a prophet. God doesn't listen to sinners. Pharisees, we're not sure that you were even blind. Where are your parents? Healed man's parents. He's our son. He was born blind. Now he sees. That's all we know. Please don't kick us out. Pharisees, now we really mean it. God's listening, right? It's really important, really uh, imperative you tell us the truth. We know that Jesus is a sinner because he broke the Sabbath by healing you. Healed man, I can't comment on Jesus' spiritual status, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Pharisees, tell us again, how did he do it? How did he heal you? Blind man, I've told you a couple times already. Are you wanting to know so you can be his followers too? Are you that excited like I am? <laughs> Pharisees. Oh, so you're one of his disciples. This is kind of where the, the, the level of followership is at now. We're disciples of Moses who came from God. We know that's where he's from. Healed man. So you don't know where he comes from, and yet he did. Whoops, my iPad. Yet he did a supernatural thing that's never been heard of happening before. Born blind. Never seen the light of day. He has to be from God. Pharisees. How dare you lecture us, you sinful man born in sin, and that's why you were blind. But yet healed by a means we'd rather not discuss. <laughs> the facts of what happened were staring these religious leaders in the face. After a host of things that they had seen and experienced firsthand of Jesus offering himself as the long-expected Messiah that he was. In your notes, it wasn't that they couldn't believe, it was that they didn't want to believe. They were doing everything they could to build a case in their heads. This cannot be him. Note this exchange of power and personal testimony. What does this man say? I don't know a lot about this guy named Jesus. I just met him today. But I sure do know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. You know, that's one of the reasons at Trinity Church we talk so much about trying to equip and continue to remind you of the power of your story, of what God has done in your life, because it means so much in your relational world. One of the biggest reasons why we make much of it is because it's your story. You know it. You don't have to go learn it from somebody else. You've walked a pathway coming to Christ and walking in him after but the other reason why it's so powerful is the people that you do life with. We hear personal testimony all the time through all kinds of promotional things in the media. These are people, though, you've never met. You don't know if that's really true. Are they really an actor? Has this really happened? To what degree? The people in your relational world, they know if those things are true because they do life with you. And that has such significance 
I am by far a perfect person, but hear what God has done for me. That carries a weight and a power like few things do. And to be clear, the Pharisees had developed a culture of fear. People knew if you talk about Jesus in a positive way, you are likely to get kicked out of the synagogue. And by the way, getting kicked out of the synagogue was being kicked out of the community. This was huge. There was no way getting back. You were kicked out of all forms of life. One of our core values hanging up on our walls and here today, you belong here. Man, whether you have been walking with Jesus for decades, whether you've been walking with him for days, or whether you're not walking with him yet, we want you to know that you can belong here. You can be a part of this family, a part of a community that is committed to living lives that are rooted in Jesus as we're reaching our worlds. Finally today, number three in your notes. Jesus is first and foremost concerned about our spiritual sight. Jesus is first and foremost concerned about our spiritual sight. John 9.35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he, when Jesus found him, the man formerly blind, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him, key operative word, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees were with him and heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, oh no, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim, but now that you claim that you see, your guilt remains. Very similar to the story you read in John 5 when Jesus healed the man on the mat, Jesus circles back and finds him. Jesus circles back and is proactive in his search of this man. And he finds him because he's much more interested in the eyes of his heart, of his spiritual eyes being open than just simply his physical eyes. That was done to demonstrate the power of God. Now something is going to be done to see the power of God even infinitely more powerful. And that is the fact that a sinner can be brought into the family of God. It's obvious that this man is a seeker because in all these attempts, he thinks Jesus earlier is a prophet talking to the Pharisees. He talks like he is one of his disciples, doesn't even really know anything other than I've been healed, but now when he meets him, his reaction is quick and it is sure. What's powerful is the man instantly, when Jesus makes himself aware, what does he say? Lord, I believe. What has John's gospel always been about? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Lord, I believe. And it says, and he instantly worshiped him. Now, in our 20th century Southern California churchy minds, we quickly go to, Lord, I lift your name on high. I have a pretty good voice, I know. But um, <laughs> um, we don't know what he did. In my mind's eye, I know it wasn't that, partly because that song was not written, but I don't think it was that. I, I don't know if he fell on his feet face? I don't know if he grabbed hold. I don't know if he began to cry. I don't know if he just began to say thank you, thank you. I don't know what. All we know is he overtly, demonstrably worshipped Jesus. And that is so powerful. That is the right, that is the appropriate, that is the 
obvious response when we come in contact with the goodness and the grace of God. In your notes, as we see this moment of moving from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight was better by far. Better by far because now he was able to see and perceive the spiritual truth that he had been blinded to. Man, this moment of spiritual awakening, spiritual sight is what this chapter is all about. Powerful that a blind man who'd never seen before can see, but even more so. Now the eyes of his heart are open and he's able to see and he responds to Jesus. The passage can't finish without another point of conflict. What, now you're saying we're blind, Jesus? And, and it was, what's powerful is Jesus does this wonderful job, right? He's always the master at everything. The master communicator, he flips their notion. No, I'm not saying anything about you being blind. You can see fine, and you're guilty because you can. And you're not responding in the way that this man just did. Heed these examples today. Be like the man who receives both physical sight and spiritual sight and responds in worship to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And steer clear. Steer clear of the example of the Pharisees who resist the one standing right in front of them. Our now what statement this week. Demonstrate spiritual sight by continuing to recognize Jesus as God's son and honor him accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today just so grateful for this passage, so grateful for the narrative of the way that you not only healed this man, but God, you made, himself, you made yourself known to him. And he responded as each and every one of us who have put our faith in you, we respond the same way, we worship you. We recognize your worth and your value and we come to you aware of who you are, aware of who we are, and so grateful that you've done what you've done. So, Father, would this be powerful in our lives this week? All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. Use our stories, the stories you've given us. Use them in the lives of the people in our relational world this week. You may be here and you're like the man born blind in that Jesus made himself known, made himself apparent to him. And he hadn't yet understood and responded, but then he did. You might be here and you have seen Jesus being made known in all kinds of ways. Today's just one other example. But yet you've never come to a point of realizing there's a response needed. It begins by, A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Jesus isn't a peripheral uh, and, and uh, non-essential in life. He is absolutely critical because of your need. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only Savior available able to give you sight into what you've been missing all along. See is choose. Choose to put your faith, your trust, your confidence in what Jesus did at a cross in an empty tomb because he did that for you. And follow his example the rest of your life. That is the appropriate response. And my prayer would be if you're ready to make that decision today, don't wait another moment. Do it now and tell someone about it today. I made the decision to follow Jesus with my life. Father, we love you. Thank you for your rich, extravagant love over us. We pray in Jesus' great name, amen.